Uh, probably about seven years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to take a whole bunch of junior and senior high kids to a camp where we learned how to orienteer with a compass. And if you've ever been in a place where you have a bunch of sleep-deprived, highly caffeinated teenagers in the woods with a group of sleep-deprived, highly caffeinated adults in the woods, lessons abound everywhere. Uh, one lesson, though, that we quickly learned is you don't just throw a compass at a kid and walk out into the woods. We spent a good hour, at least, uh, preparing for it. Because we have some kids who don't even know what a compass is, and we had to learn how to read the compass. We had to learn how to trust the compass and use it. And so part of the event of getting ready to go out into the woods it was actually spent learning to trust the compass that we're going to be taking. Uh, in reality, the Christian life offers us a compass as well. Uh, the Bible does not lay out a map, a detailed map of life. Sometimes I wish it did, right? If you go to the Bible and ask, who am I supposed to date? What kind of career should I pursue? What is the best retirement plan for me? Those kind of specific detail questions, the Bible is, not surprising, very silent on those issues. But if you ask questions like, what kind of person am I to become to be a dateable person? What, how should I use my career to further the kingdom of God? Or how can I leave a legacy that's going to surpass my life? You ask character questions of the scriptures, and you'll get answers that are very, very clear. So the Bible provides that for us. It doesn't give us specifics, but he does promise I will give you the next step, and I will give you a guide. Um, so we have scripture, and we have the Lord Jesus Christ going with us. Um, but perhaps the lesson that takes us the longest to learn really is the lesson of learning to trust the Lord. Um, from the newest Christian to the oldest Christian, the, le the lesson of learning to have faith, to walk by faith, to trust the compass of our lives, that's not something that just goes away with time. You would think that it would, but I don't think that's the case. It's, a, it's an ongoing battle. So as we think about how do we learn to use the compass of our life, how do we do that process? Perhaps one of the most famous verses out of Proverbs would be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which is our school's theme verse for this year. And it begins with, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And depending on your translation, something along the lines of directing your path, making your path straight, making your path smooth, depending. But I want you to notice that first part, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And that is the means by which we have a straight path. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot said, and I think it's rightly so, that the more you pay for advice, the more likely you are to take it. So let's take that and make, do a little mind thought for ourselves. All right, someone, a friend, or a family member shows up and gives you advice on parenting, right? If it's a friend or a family, depending on the relationship, you may or may not take it. It's kind of up in the air. If you're a golfer, which I am not, your friend gives you advice on how to improve your golf swing. Yeah, you may take it, you may not. If you're into uh, how to get a date, right? Your friend, your parents, your mother tells you what you should do. Yeah, you may take it, you may not. But you suddenly put money into that factor, right? You go to a parenting seminar, you go to a golf pro, you go to a dating service, and you pay money. What's the chances of taking advice then? It dramatically increases. And we would think that that would work with God, but in one sense, he calls for even more. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not some of it. He says, I'm offering you guidance, but not guidance in the kind of guidance that you can choose to accept or reject. He says, my guidance is my will. And here's the crazy thing. You pay everything in, and I promise your path will be straight, 
but I'm not going to tell you when that's all going to pan out. It's not a, God, what's your will? I think I might take it if it goes along with what I want. God does not offer us that. He says, trust in the Lord and I will make your path straight if you wholeheartedly commit to me. Because most of us, we kind of come to God with, uh, I will do this as long as you promise that you won't hurt me. As long as you promise to provide this thing that I think I need. And God says, I, I don't work that way. I, you come to me, you jump wholeheartedly, and I promise to make your path straight. How that works and how that looks is an, is an issue of trust, an issue of confidence in who he is. So John Newton, uh, the very famed hymnist, wrote, I think, the prayer that we need to pray all the time. He, he wrote this, Lord, what you will, when you will, how you will. So the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, which we just sang, said the prayer, the prayer of a Christian is this, what you will, when you will, how you will. If we can pray that with authenticity and say, God, that is my prayer, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. But let's take a look at the life of Christ. Uh, he's going to flesh this out for us, give us an example. So if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, we'll be at Mark chapter 4 pretty much the whole time. Verse 35. Let's see if this works. Yes. First point, when we are forced to trust a compass in unfamiliar and in unknown places. So Mark chapter 4, verse 35 begins this way. That day, and we'll talk about all the things that happened that day. That was a very long day. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Most of us don't need to trust a compass until we're lost or until we're going to a place we don't know or the place we thought we knew is suddenly different than we expected, right? So most of you probably did not plug in your GPS to get to church this morning. You probably didn't bust out your map at Dutchess County and be like, okay, if we take this route, this is how we're going to get here. We don't do that because we know where we're going. But when we go into places where we have no idea, you know, dropping a bunch of kids off into the woods and say, find your way back, then you need a compass. Or if you go to a place where you thought you knew it and find out you don't really know it. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to go back to Las Cruces, New Mexico, the town I spent my elementary days in. Uh, and I flew into Texas and we drove to Las Cruces. Right? I drove from my church to my old house hundreds of times, I think it would be safe to say. When I was behind the wheel at 25 or however old I was, I couldn't find it. I did that route I don't know how many times, but I found myself needing a GPS all of a sudden. Because what was once familiar was no longer familiar to me. Because buildings were looking different. For some reason, a 12-year-old's perspective of how life looks is a lot different than when you're 25 actually driving. And suddenly, I needed a compass. I needed a map. I needed a GPS. And the disciples are going to be very much like us. It's gonna, they're they're going to find themselves in two positions. Moving into the unfamiliar and having the familiar suddenly become unfamiliar on a, on a, on a dime. The first one that we need to keep in mind is they're going to be heading across the lake to a totally different location in obedience to Jesus. A trial is going to hit them like they've never seen before, and it's not because of sin. It's because of obedience that this trial is going to hit them. 
So Jesus tells them, let's get in the boat, head to the other side. They're leaving a crowd of Jews who have basically hung on every single word that Jesus has spoken. We have thousands of people and a few demons that he's cast out. Okay, so we got thousands of religious people loving what Jesus is saying. Jesus' hometown group, the disciples' hometown group, they get in a boat, they cross the lake, and in, in leaving thousands of people with a few demons, they meet one guy with thousands of demons. You don't get much more of a contrast than that. A thousand religious people, one demon-possessed guy with a thousand demons in him. And that's the unfamiliar that's coming. But in that kind of scenario, you can kind of expect it, right? They didn't know exactly what Gerizim was going to look like, but they knew it wasn't going to be like home. So they had in their mind, okay, we got to be ready. Things are going to look different. So for those of us who have left homes and moved to different towns, for those of us who have changed careers or changed schools, or Mikey here in just a few minutes will be heading off and changing everything, we can expect it's going to be different. We may not know exactly what. But if we're honest with ourselves, those are not the kind of storms that really, really shake us. The storms that shake us the most is when we're in our familiar element and suddenly the familiar caves in and there's the unfamiliar where we thought we knew what was going on. So these disciples are fishermen. They've been on that lake hundreds of times in the course of their life, probably thousands. And the Bible says a furious squall comes up out of nowhere, right? They look up at the sky clear, blue. Jesus says, let's get in the boat. They're like, okie dokie, hop in the boat, head off. An hour into it, a furious squall comes up on them, and the familiar suddenly is very, very unfamiliar. And it's at that point that their, their confidence in the Lord is shaken to its core. It's at that point that everything changes. And this is when, you know, you come home from work at 12 o'clock finding out that your house has been broken into when you left that Thursday morning and everything was fine. That's when you find out about divorces that you never saw coming or the loss of health or death, the things you cannot predict. And they're there. And that's when we shake. And that's when fear takes over. And that's when our confidence in the Lord is suddenly jarred quite a bit. So they find themselves in obedience to the Lord in the midst of a storm and they're struggling. He's going to lead them into this trial. But I want you to notice when they go to Jesus because these are men, and this is like a man trait, right? It's like, I'm going to solve this on my own, unless, of course, I can't. So they are at the oars, straining at the oars for hours. And then when everything is about to go haywire and their boat's about to sink, then what happens? Then they go get Jesus, right? Because as long as they thought they could handle it, we'll ruling Jesus out of this one. Until suddenly things get crazy, and we're going to die, and then we go to Jesus. And so that's how it happens. The familiar becoming unfamiliar or the times we go into places where we know it's going to be different. Those are the times we have to trust the compass. Those are the times where we are in desperate need of direction. All right. This leads us to our next point. <clears throat> oh, nah, I have it here. I'm not used to that. We must trust the invisible power of the compass. You see, compasses work on an invisible thing called magnetism. And I don't even claim to understand that, right? We have some science people in the room. Go talk to them. They'll try to explain it to you. But it has to do with a force that's always in effect. And compasses always point north. Always, without a doubt. Um, but we can't see it. And much to the same way, Jesus has a force and he's working and we don't understand it because it's invisible. And the things that he does sometimes do not make sense. So, but before we jump to the major point of this text, before we get into exactly what's going on here, I want us to identify with the disciples a minute. Uh, the disciples here, I think, are in a position where I would respond almost the exact same way. 
So they have obeyed Jesus. They have had a very long day along with him. They have been serving him wholeheartedly. They're in the boat doing exactly what he's told them to do. And the one that they are doing all of this for is uninvolved, or so it seems. Waves, lightning, rain, and Jesus, the one this is all focused on, is sleeping. All right, and they look up and then they see a wave coming, a wave bigger than any wave they've ever seen. And they've seen a lot of waves. And they know in a few short minutes, we're going to die. And Jesus, the one we're doing all of this for, is totally uninvolved. And so they respond to Jesus. Have you ever been in a place like that? I think all of us have to some degree. And they stand up and they say, don't you care that we died? And that makes sense. I look at that and I say, that's probably what I would say. But Jesus's response makes no sense to me. Look what he says. Okay, so they're about to sink and die in a huge water storm. No fun. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Uh, pretty clear, Jesus. I'm afraid because we're all going to die, right? If you're not afraid about this, what are you going to be afraid of? But Jesus' response is, why are you afraid? To which I'm thinking, uh, I think it's pretty clear, Jesus, why I'm afraid. And they come to him and say, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care? And that's a, a huge phrase we're going to come to. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. He stands up. He does not rebuke the disciples right away, which is what I probably would do if I was him. But he turns and he rebukes the waves. He says, be quiet, be still. This is not kind of like it's in the Greek. Again, I'm no Greek expert, but in the Greek, it's like very forceful. It's like be muzzled and stay that way. That's the actual word idea. Be muzzled and stay that way. And as you guys know the story, it goes instantly calm. The Greek word there is mega calm. Again, not the word we often associate with calmness. So it's raging, lightning, flashing clouds. Done. Totally still. Be calm and stay that way. And the disciples and all of their fear is now suddenly more afraid of the one in the boat than they were of anything outside of the boat. And I think there's a lot to be learned in that exact idea. Because I think sometimes, in our culture specifically, we need to have a right order of fear. A couple weeks or months later, Jesus is going to send his disciples out to evangelize in Israel, in Matthew chapter 10. And he's going to send them out, but he's going to tell them this, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And again, you're like, well, if you're not going to be afraid of the psychopathic killer with a chainsaw, who are you going to be afraid of? And then he concludes, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. But what? Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he's talking about God. Be afraid of God. Have your fear in the right order. Right? If you're afraid of God in the appropriate way, the psychopath with a chainsaw may be a little disconcerting, but you're not going to freak out about it. And please, you shouldn't. And so the disciples, in, for one moment, have their fear in the right order. They are afraid of the right person at the right time. And the storm is not it. Jesus is the one that they, that they need to be afraid of, and they are. They're terrified, in fact. So the teacher they thought they knew suddenly was more than they thought. Because Jesus' humility and his humanity, I think, had, in a sense, blocked them from seeing him for who he was. The course of that day went something like this. All right, he does some teaching. He does some miracles. The Pharisees come and attack him and basically tell him that he's using all of his power because he's possessed by the devil. All right, if that's not missing the big picture, then nothing is missing the big picture. And no fire falls from heaven. Jesus doesn't be like, oh, I'm from the devil, am I? 
dead. You know, he doesn't do anything. He responds to them, but he's allowed to be attacked and he doesn't do anything. His parents come, his brothers and his sisters and his mother come to collect him because they think he's pushing it a little too far. Pastor Jeff did a sermon on that. That's the same day. He's healing people left and right, and he's done four lessons, four parables that he's taught all in the same day. And now he's sleeping in a hurricane because that's how tired he is because of the, the course of the day that he's had, right? I can't sleep on an airplane. I mean, how tired would I have to be? I don't even know. And I'd have to be pretty tired to fall asleep on an airplane. He's falling asleep in the middle of a hurricane. And so they think of Jesus in this way. So when he stands up, and in two sentences calms this storm, they realize he is not who they thought he was. He is much, much more than who he thought he was. And so they ask this question, who is this? If you notice, they don't say, who is this man? Because I think at this point, they're not even totally sure he's all human, right? No human does this. So they're like, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And that question hangs in the air. And nobody answers it for seven verses. And the person who answers it is not a theologian. It's not a disciple. It's not a God follower. If you look at chapter 5, verse 7, who answers that question of who is this? It's a little unnerving. The demon-possessed man is the one who identifies Jesus and says, What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Having a knowledge of God is not enough. If knowing facts about him was enough, that demon-possessed man would be ahead of me in heaven by far. Because that demon in that man knew more about Jesus than his own disciples did. So head knowledge is not what God is after. He's after a living, breathing faith that's built on the head knowledge. Because he wants more than that from us. Uh, about 100 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Charles Blondin. Forgive me, I've probably used this illustration at some point in the last 10 years. I like it. It comes up a lot. Charles Blondin was a famous acrobat. He walked across Niagara Falls lots and lots of times uh, in the beginning of the 1900s. And he was, he was world famous. And one day, he got in front of his crowd and he said, How many of you think I can walk across Niagara Falls? And they're like, Of course you can. You're Charles Blondin. You're the greatest. You can do anything. He's like, okay, walks across Niagara Falls, comes back. He then says, how many of you think I can carry a man across Niagara Falls? They're like, of course you can, Charles Blondin. You're the greatest. You could carry anybody across Niagara Falls. And then he says, who's going to be my first volunteer? And nobody in the crowd stood up. His manager did, though. And so his manager got on his back, and they walked across Niagara Falls together. Now, what's the difference? The manager had a relationship with Charles Blondin. A manager put, in a sense, put his money where his mouth is. He literally got on the back of Charles Blondin and they walked across Niagara Falls. Could he have carried anybody? Yes. Would he carry anybody? Now here's the issue for us. Jesus does all the work. This manager, what did he have to do? Clay to Charles Blondin, end of story. He doesn't have to have a balancing act. He doesn't have to worry about the ropes. He doesn't have to worry about if he can swim or not or, you know, survive a huge fall from Niagara Falls. What does he have to do? Cling to Charles Blondin. And the gospel is the exact same thing to us today. You don't have to work your way to heaven. You don't have to know how to please God perfectly in every area. What do you have to do? Cling to Jesus. 
because he's perfect and he did the law in completion for you and for me. He says, I completed it all. Your faith is in me. You're over the Niagara Falls. But there's a temptation for all of us to kind of want to get off Charles Blondin and do our own thing or get halfway over Niagara Falls and say, I think I want to go back. And Jesus says, we're going forward. There is no going back. And sometimes he doesn't operate the way we expect. And he stops and we're sitting there waiting. We're like, I don't like it right here. Can we please keep moving? And sometimes he's like, mm, no, I think, I think we're going to wait. Take a breather. <laughs> the confidence of the gospel is not in us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not confident in us. Our entire confidence rests in him. And so the disciples are sitting here in the midst of a storm and Jesus brings front and center this life question. Do you have confidence in me or not? He didn't say, let's go, let's go into the middle of the lake and drown. That's the plan. Get in the boat, guys. What did he tell them? Let's get in the boat and go across. He didn't say, let's get in the boat, drown, and then our bodies will wash up on shore in Gerizim. We'll be awesome. They'll write, write poems about us and we'll make a movie. He says, no, we're going to get in the boat and we're going to go across. Now, if they would have known who they were with, they wouldn't have worried. They probably would have got them a little sooner, maybe. And they definitely would have been like, uh, well, Lord, you know, we're about to die, but we know you got this. Just, just letting you know. We're going we're gonna to sit back and take a nap, too, with you. And when you're ready, you calm the storm. They learn something. They see Christ in the storm in a way that they never had before. Our last point. We must not doubt the compass course when it veers off of our course. Because I guarantee you, there will be points in life where Jesus will veer off of our course. Right? I have never talked to too many junior hires who know, who are totally clueless about what they'd like to do. There are a few. Most of them are like, I want to be a fireman or a professional basketball player. I don't know. I don't know what Nick wants to do back in the corner there. Basketball might be up there. I don't know. But they always have this idea. But then when you ask a 25-year-old where he wants to go, suddenly the answer is like, oh, I don't know, I graduated from college and I hope something good happened because I'm getting tired of working at Starbucks, right? God takes corners and twists and he veers off of our course on a semi-regular basis. They had been with Jesus that day. He taught them four separate lessons about what it means to have faith in the kingdom. He tells them the parable of the four soils. He tells them the parable of the lampstand. He tells them the parable of the growing seed and he tells them the parable of the mustard seed, all dealing with faith. And yet when it comes to practicing it, they're freaking out. Because if we could learn how to live only on teaching, we would have this thing mastered by seven. Because how many of you had parents that told you exactly what you needed to do? Right? If teaching was all it took, we, it would be such a different world we live in. But teaching is not all it is. Right? They had four lessons from Jesus with explanation from the Son of God. Four seconds later, they're in the midst of a storm and they're not living by faith at all. They needed to have the practice put into place. They needed to be able to actively see the Lord move in this way. So Jesus asks them with a, with a very real reason, why do you still have no faith, right? They should have known better. And I think he's a little bit frustrated here because they missed the point. He says, they say to him, don't you care that we drown? Um, I have not had this experience just yet. Timothy Keller raises this in uh, one, of his, one of his points in one of his books. This is the equivalent of the little kid walking up to his mom and saying, this is what I want. You haven't given it to me. You don't love me. 
Now, any parent in here, and I've only been a parent for like two and a half years, knows that because I'm not giving you this thing, suddenly you don't think I love you? What does that even mean? So Cayman's been, for about the last year or so, in a stage of life where he wants something, and he just recently discovered, I have to have, I have to have this thing, right? It's like, really? You have to have this Lego? I didn't know that. I didn't know you needed that for life. I have to have this. And then when you say no... I mean, if that doesn't say you don't love me, right, what, what, what else is there that, that would say that better, right? You don't love me. If you loved me, you'd give me everything I want, right? So the disciples come to Jesus and say, don't you care that we drown? And he's looking at them saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Don't I care that you drown? And I think the rest of the story, and this is where Timothy Keller's point hits home. The rest of the story says, how much did Jesus care for them? He could have said, and I think in essence, those of us who know the rest of the story know along these lines, he looks at them and says, don't you care, Andrew, James, John, that I'm going to enter into a storm a billion times bigger than this one for you so that you don't have to. And unlike you in this storm, I'm going to do it alone. God the Father is going to turn his back on me and the wrath of God is going to be poured out in ways that none of us can fully understand. And don't you care that I'm going to go through that storm for you? Do you understand what you're saying? I'm going to go through a storm so that you never have to be alone in a storm. It doesn't mean we're not going to have trials. It doesn't mean we're not going to have storms. It just means we never have to face that storm by ourselves, ever. Because Jesus already went through the worst storm ever so that we never have to face it alone. And so he's looking at them saying, why do you have no faith? Why do you have no faith? Of course I care about you. I'm going to care about you more than you realize, so much so that it's going to cost me all of my blood I care so much for you. And you're going to ask, don't you care that we drown? So let's think back to our own lives. Do we ask that question? I think we do. And I think the problem is we don't understand who it is we're saying that to. When was the last time we said, God, don't you care that and then fill in the blank with whatever it is for you. And we honestly think at times that he doesn't care. But then we forget the cross and what the cross means. The cross means he cares more than we ever could imagine. So much so that he died in order that he would walk it with us. And he says, ultimately, in the mega storms of this life, you can trust me. You can trust this compass course. Yeah, it veers off of your plan all the time. I think anyone telling the story of the gospel would not have had it end with Jesus dying on a cross. That's not how I'd have it end. God's plan was always to go that direction. From every person's perspective on earth, save for Jesus, it veered radically off. But he's still in charge. And that's true for our lives. So Christ is going to pay the ultimate price so that his disciples won't have to. Christ is going to pay the ultimate price so that we never have to ask that question, God, don't you care? Because he does, and he's made it as clear as clear can be, that of course he cares. I love the fact, though, that the disciples, though they have very weak faith, at least had faith in Jesus, right? We see that twice. Their faith is incredibly weak. But when Jesus says, get in a boat and head to the Gerizim region full of crazy people, they jump in the boat and they go right away. And in the midst of the storm... Of course, by this point, there's no other place to go. But in the midst of the storm, they at least go to Jesus for the answer. And so their faith is incredibly weak. And so here's a picture of a guy 
it's clearly photoshopped so please don't email me saying this is not a real picture it's not a real picture clearly photoshopped but let's pretend for a second that that guy hanging on the edge of a cliff is being pursued by a bear and what you can't see on the edge of the picture is there are three branches hanging off the end of the other side and he has to make a decision it's better to have weak faith in the right thing than a strong faith in the wrong thing if this guy jumps and he's like, I don't know if this branch is going to hold, and he jumps and grabs the right one and it holds his weight, that's a better position than the guy's like, I'm confident it's the second one. And then the second one snaps off in his hands and he falls to his death. So the challenge for us today, what is your faith in? Not is it a strong faith. If it's a strong faith in the right thing, great. But I love the fact the disciples did not have a very strong faith. And yet God still spares them and teaches them a lesson about who he is and where they're ultimately going. So even if those of us in this room with weak faith, is there any other place you would want to put that faith? Because there's going to be a challenge and there's going to be a lot of people calling to put your faith in something else. The question is, what is your faith going to ultimately be in? Even if it's weak, if it's in the right one, then you will stand. Because again, it's not about you walking across Niagara Falls. It's about you trusting the person who's going to carry you across. And that weak faith will hopefully be strengthened, and we see with the disciples that it will be. So ultimately, where else can you go? Where else can you put your faith? What other compass course of life is more trustworthy and proven to be true? And then which one, at the end of the day, is going to carry you where, it needs to, where you need to be? It is a required trust. He says, commit everything to me. Don't ask for fail-safes. Don't ask for backup plans. Don't ask for plan B. God has plan A. It's full-on commitment. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Let's pray. Lord, we fail at this so often. Uh, I know I do. So often my faith is in all kinds of things, uh, silly things when you think about it from an eternal perspective. And often we doubt, Lord, I know I'm not the only one to ask where are you or why did you or how could you, God? Assuming that you don't care. Forgive us, Lord, for those things. And I thank you that you are still so merciful with us that you calm the storms at the right time. That you promise to go through the storms with us that we never have to face it alone because you faced it alone so that we don't have to. And for anyone in here who does not have faith in you, who is trying to row the boat of their own life, through the storm, trying to walk across Niagara Falls by their own strength. May you, may you reveal to them that you've already done it and that you are there waiting to carry them. May their faith be moved from a strong faith in the wrong thing, if necessary, to a weak faith in the right thing. We pray these things in your name. Amen.